0: The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. If you grew up with the KJV, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, right? And then there's that Old Testament verse in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I believe, that says, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. Like we... We talk about prayer a lot. We know that it is undoubtedly a very important topic in the scriptures, but why is it so important? How should we pray? What is the effect of our prayers? And why should we pray if God knows all things? Hopefully, those are some of the answers that we're gonna tackle this morning as we work our way through our main text. Speaking of our text, go ahead and grab your Bible. I hope you have one. Nehemiah chapter one will be the text that we're working through this morning. If you don't have it, the more I I age... And if you were closer to me, you could see my gray hairs popping through. The the quicker I just wanna get into the Bible as a preacher of the word. I know that at the end of the day, my main responsibility is not to tell you my opinion, but to preach God's word, and this book keeps me on track. So let's go ahead and just dive right in and work our way verse by verse through this text. Beginning in verse one of chapter one, Nehemiah says this. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, Now it happened in the month of Chislev, which is November, in case you're wondering, in the 20th year as I was in Susa, that's the capital city of Persia, the citadel that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So here's what's happening. Nehemiah is penning this journal entry and Nehemiah was serving as cupbearer to King Artaxerxes at this time. This was a very prestigious position, albeit it was risky, of course. Nehemiah was in charge of tasting the king's drink before he took a taste, and in case it was poison, Nehemiah would take the hit and not the king. Most historians say that this was a very well-paid position. If there was a Persian dream to achieve, Nehemiah achieved it. Many people say that he lived in an immaculate palace that rested on hundreds of acres of land. And one day, out of the blue, his brother Hanani shows up to the palace, knocks on the door, and schedules a meeting with Nehemiah and they begin shooting the breeze and eventually the topics of the city of God and the people of God arise. Nehemiah looks at Hanani and says, tell me about the city. How's it doing? Is it making any progress? And tell me about the people of God. Are they worshiping the Lord? Are they walking in the ways of God? And Hanani looks at Nehemiah and says, bro, I wish I could tell you differently, but the reality is the city is in shambles. The temple wall has been destroyed, its gates are engulfed in flames, and God's people are not walking in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all the other fruits of the spirit, but rather in shame, depression, and despair. So that's the context that we're dealing with here in chapter one. God's people aren't thriving. Their heads are down and perhaps even doubting the love of God in their life. They're walking in shame, and that's a big deal, because the Bible says in Romans chapter eight verse one, "There is now, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus." How does Nehemiah respond? Take a look at verse four. The Bible says, as soon as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So the text says that when Nehemiah heard the news, a series of events ensued. Number one, he sat down. He was so startled and taken back that he just had to compose himself and just sit down. Perhaps some of you have been there before, you, you get wind of something that you weren't expecting and you're like, hold, hold on, I just need to take a seat for a second. So he sat down. The text also says that he wept and mourned. The Hebrew word that we're dealing with here for mourned is a ball, and it literally refers to a mourning for the dead. Nehemiah is emotionally crushed by this news. So he sat down, he wept, and he mourned. And the text also says that he fasted and he prayed. Now, this fast that Nehemiah participated in wasn't necessarily an intentional fast away from food so that he could focus more time on prayer. No, he was rather just so emotionally devastated that he literally just couldn't eat. So he fasted. Now, there are different terms for praying that you see populate all throughout the scriptures. This term actually paints a Hebrew word picture of Nehemiah on the ground in his room, knees down, hands raised, absolutely desperate for God. How many of you have ever been in a situation before where you just feel so desperate for God to help you, and the only prayer that you can conjure up is, help me, Lord, this, this is Nehemiah. I remember when I was in middle school, I participated in Take Your Child to Work Day. Anybody? Yep, I love those days because I, get to, I got to skip out on science class and I really wasn't a big fan of science. I liked mathematics, but not so much science. So I remember I was at my mother's work and at the time she served as a nurse for a doctor who did colonoscopies. So that was really, really interesting So the first half of the day, I just flipped through files and organized some things. And then around lunchtime, I looked at my mom and I said, Mom, I need a break, okay, from this office. Can I please just walk over to Mickey D's and get me a couple Big Macs? Back then when I was, you know, 14, I could down three Big Macs in one sitting and not gain one pound, okay? I loved it. For all of you who are trying to lose weight, I apologize for that that little nugget of truth there. But good luck on your journey. <laughs> so my, my mother worked right off Kerry Parkway. You guys are, most of you are locals, I'm assuming. So, you know, that's a pretty busy road. So I, I, I walk across Kerry Parkway. I'm on um, a sidewalk heading to McDonald's and all of a sudden behind me, I notice that a car stops, which was pretty weird because Kerry Parkway, again, is a high traffic area. Why would you just stop in the middle of Kerry Parkway? So I turn around and I see a guy, get out of the car and initially I'm thinking, okay, perhaps he's lost and he needs some directions. Well, after a couple of seconds and after he looks at me and says, why don't you come into my car and I want to take you to a place and we can have some fun together. Once, once he said that and I looked into his eyes and saw the evil in his eyes, I mean, I, I, In that moment, I was was pretty terrified. I mean, the the trepidation level in my life increased immensely. I didn't know at the time that there was, you know, child abduction cases just running rampant throughout the city of Cary. But in that moment, I was kind of desperate for God. So I, I ran across that street and I literally remember praying as I'm like kind of dodging cars, okay? Help me, Lord, show up in my life. I didn't know what was going to happen to me, right? This is the context that, Nehemiah is dealing with here in chapter 1. He's desperate for God to show up in his life because he knows in just a, a few short weeks that he's going to approach the king, the same king who stopped construction on the wall in Ezra chapter 4, and ask him permission to take an extended leave of absence, head to the city of Jerusalem, and rebuild the temple wall that's been in shambles for over a hundred years. Verse 5 continues. Let's, let's keep going. So this is, this is Nehemiah's prayer. We're going to learn a little bit about the nuts and bolts of how he exactly prayed. Verse five says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. I, I don't know about you, but I love the way Nehemiah begins this prayer. Notice that he describes God as awesome. Truth be told, though, we, we use that term awesome out of context all the time and we overuse it, don't we? I mean, awesome means to inspire awe. How was your breakfast today? My breakfast was awesome, man. Oh, really? Your breakfast was awesome. How was your day? Awesome. How was your meeting? Awesome. How was your day? Awesome. Like everything is awesome. Well, I hate to break it to you, but there is only one person who truly can inspire awe in your life today, now, and forevermore, and his name is Jesus. He is the great and awesome God. Nehemiah describes him in that way in chapter one. Now take note of how Nehemiah begins his prayer. He begins with praise, right? And I would commend this strategy to you as well. Before you petition the Lord for anything, it would behoove you to take a second and stop and just thank God for who he is and what he has done in your life. Praise him for his grace. Thank him for everything that he has given to you that you don't deserve and that you didn't work for. And and by the way, that list is very long. As a matter of fact, every good thing that you have is an evidence of God's grace everything, because you don't deserve anything. As human beings born into this world as sinners, we deserve wrath, hell, and damnation, but God gives us grace. Take time to thank God for his mercy. Remember everything that he has withheld from you that you rightfully deserve. That's his mercy. Praise him for his kindness in your life and his faithfulness. Praise him for his patience in your life. Have you ever thought about and just contemplated how patient God is with you? (laughs) Think about how many times you say, no, Lord, mm, I know what your word says, but I'm going to do my thing. Think about how many promises you break. Oh yeah, Lord, I'm I'm never going to do that again, right? And I'm going to read my Bible for 30 minutes every day for the rest of my life. Think about how many promises you make to the Lord and how many you've broken, (laughs) yet he remains with you. He's patient with you. Nehemiah begins with praise. Verse six continues and he says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. As you guys can probably tell, there's an urgency here. The Nehemiah and to Nehemiah's spirit into his prayer in chapter one. He's not saying, all right, God, I've got five minutes here in my closet for my QT, my quiet time with my cup of joe before I go to work. I'm just gonna lift up some prayers to the Lord real quick. You know, this is not Nehemiah's attitude. Nehemiah doesn't want to breathe another breath until he knows that God is attentive to his prayer. He wants to know God is, is listening. He wants to know that God is near. He wants to know that God is going to answer his request. And here is why. Nehemiah isn't just approaching anyone. He is approaching the king. And keep in mind, back then kings had absolute authority. There was no voting. Whatever the king said was final. And if you upset the king, you weren't put in timeout. You were put to death. You know, the story of Esther, I think it came up earlier today, reminds us of how capricious kings could be. Even after Esther was awarded the queenship, she still had to get special permission to spend any time with the king. And and, and right before she went to the king and asked for, you know, his permission to reverse the edict on the total destruction of the Jews, she commanded that everyone in the province go on a fast for her. Why? Because she was desperate for God to perform a miracle. And this is exactly what we're dealing with here in chapter 1. Keep in mind, again, Nehemiah is approaching the same king that stopped construction on the wall in Ezra chapter 4. And he's going to go to him and say, hey, king, I know not too long ago you said, you know, that the wall shouldn't be completed, but I'm asking you to reconsider that. He's desperate for God. Learn from Nehemiah Northwest Community Church. Learn from him. Throw yourself upon the power and mercy of God, and pray big prayers, and dream big dreams, and trust in him to do what man deems impossible. Verse 6b continues the story. Nehemiah says, Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Now, I want us to see that Nehemiah is lumping himself into the problem here. He writes, we have sinned against you, and he goes on to say that even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments. Nehemiah here is acknowledging the plank that is in his own eye. He is admitting to being a part of the problem. Perhaps you know the teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, why is it that you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? goes on to say, you hypocrite, first take the log that is at your own eye so that you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Nehemiah is acknowledging the log that is in his own eye here in chapter one. You know, and, and, and let's, you know that, that was a rhetorical question that Jesus posed in Matthew chapter seven, but let's consider it real quick. I think that would do us uh, a good service. Why is it that we see the speck in someone else's eye, but do not notice the log that is in our own. Well, I can tell you why. It's because of pride. Augustine deems pride as the mother of all sin, and he's right. Think about it. I mean, anytime you sin, you say my way is more important than God's way, and that at its core is prideful. In laying down his pride, Nehemiah took personal responsibility for his sin, and he ran to God for forgiveness, and that's what I would encourage you to do today. Run to a gracious God for forgiveness. But Matt, I don't really struggle with sin. Yes, you do. You can put on your religious clothes. You can come in here with your, your iPads and whip out your Bible apps and you know, your big leather study Bibles. And you can you know, put on a good face. And, but you, you, you deeply struggle with sin. Just like Nehemiah did. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we are liars, and the truth does not live in us. You and I both battle immensely against this thing called sin, and it's a very serious issue. But praise be to God. He is someone who forgives and takes delight in sin. Wiping our slate clean. The Bible says in Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. But Matt, hold up. I mean, don't I need to clean myself up a little bit? Like before I approach him? The reality is you can't. It's impossible for you to clean yourself up. The only one who can clean you is Jesus Christ. Let me share with you one of my favorite scripture verses. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, the author says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne room of grace. This is a mind-blowing text to me. So you're saying that I can approach God's throne room with confidence, like me. But I'm a sinner, he's never sinned, I'm imperfect, he's perfect, um, I'm unholy, he's holy, I'm created, he's creator, I'm small, he's... Been, you're, you're, You're saying that I can just approach his throne with confidence. Yes, yes, and yes. Why? Because his throne room is a throne room of grace. And as believers, we should never get tired of hearing the grace of God. I got to be honest with you, I am a grace addict. I am a proud grace addict and I pray I will never get over the grace of God and I pray that you will never get over the grace of God and that it will truly be the engine that fuels your Christian life. God's grace, more of God's grace. That's what you should want from the preachers and pastors here every Sunday. Just tell me about God's grace. Just give it to me. Just tell me that that he who knew no sin became sin for me so that in him I could become the righteousness of God. Tell me that it, it is by grace that we have been saved, through faith, and not by works, so that no one may boast. God's grace. This is what separates Christianity from all the other world religions. Religion teaches that in order to get to God, you must ascend to the top of the mountain and that God is sitting on some, you know, lazy boy chair on top of the mountain. And if you, through moral improvement in good works, work hard enough, then you'll reach the top of the mountain. And when you get there, God will give you a big hug and welcome you into his family. That's religion. Christianity teaches something unequivocally opposed to that. Christianity teaches that God descended from the top of the mountain to reach us so that we could be saved not not by works, but by the grace of God. What we're seeing here in Nehemiah chapter one is grace. I mean, for for years, Nehemiah and and, and God's people were bucking the will of God and doing their own thing, and then in this moment, he comes to a gracious, forgiving God, and God hears him. I love that. If I could pay you a million dollars today to memorize Hebrews 4.16, I would. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne room of grace. But Matt, I just I just did this last night. And if people found out that I did this this morning at Northwest then, then I, I think that they would defriend me and, and not even want to be around me anymore. Are you saying that I can just approach his throne room? Yes. And I'm not encouraging you to flippantly approach God, okay? There needs to be an element of awe and respect when you approach a holy God. But at the same time, I want to beat in your brain that his throne room is a throne of grace. So he's ready to welcome you with open arms, regardless of what you have done. Nehemiah acknowledged that. And through his prayer, he goes to the Lord and asks for forgiveness. Verse 8 continues, and the Bible says, Remember the word... And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So let's do a little bit of recap, okay? Nehemiah's in Susa, 800 miles away from the city of Jerusalem, serving as cupbearer, living the life of the rich and famous. One day, Hanani shows up. They begin talking. Nehemiah gets word that the city is in shambles and God's people are walking in shame. Instantly, he's crushed. And that burden led him to sit down, weep, mourn, pray and fast for four months. Now, here's a question. I mean, if God knows everything and if he knew the outcome of this situation, why would Nehemiah spend four months in prayer? It doesn't really make much sense, right? Well, it actually makes a lot of biblical sense. The reason why Nehemiah prayed for four months even though God knows all things, because he understood the biblical reality that he could do nothing of eternal significance apart from the help of God. Nothing. Jesus says very clearly in John fifteen five, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remain in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. 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 Prayer is God's way for you to demonstrate your dependence on him. And the Apostle Paul realized this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He's actually having a a dialogue with the Lord about his thorn in the flesh. Theologians have debated about what this thorn is for centuries now. Some people say it's pride. Others say it was a physical ailment of some sort. Regardless, he was dealing with something and Paul wanted it out of his life. So one day he approaches the Lord and says, uh, Lord, I'm really not, not digging this thorn and I want you to take it away. God's answer, silence. Paul comes back to the Lord the next day. Lord, I don't know if you heard me the other day um, or if you drunk your coffee this morning, but I'm really, I, I'm really not a big fan of this thorn in my life. And I actually think it's prohibiting me from being the man that, God, that you want me to be. So take it out, remove it from my life. I don't want it anymore. I've had it for too long. God's response, yet again, silence. Paul comes back to the Lord a third time. He says, Lord, I don't know how <laughs> loud I need to shout, but take the thorn away. I don't want it in my life anymore. The Lord responds this time, but in a very interesting manner. The Lord says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. When Paul heard that, a light bulb went off in his mind and in his heart, and he responded to the Lord's voice by saying, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that Christ's strength may rest in me. The Christian life, my friends, isn't primarily about you working for God. It's about God working through you. And prayer is a way for you to acknowledge that before a holy God. I can't do it, but God can. I can't get through this trial, but God can allow me through his strength to get through this. This is precisely what Nehemiah did here in chapter one. And let me tell you this, the Lord answered his prayer in epic fashion, okay? If you continue studying the story, you'll see that in chapter two, Nehemiah approaches the king. Again, the same king that stopped construction on the wall in Ezra chapter four. I know that's the third time I've told you that, but I want you to remember that, okay? Okay? Approaches the same king that stopped construction on the wall and says, King Artaxerxes, I know that this is out of the blue and you're, you're probably not expecting this, but I need an extended leave of absence to leave my role as cupbearer here in Susa and head to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple wall with the Jews who have returned home. The king said, sure, no doubt. Nehemiah responds, And says, well, there's more to the request than just that. I actually need all the necessary resources to get the job done. King responds, sure, you can have everything that you need. Then, Nehemiah takes the 800-mile trek back to Jerusalem. When he arrives, the story leads us to believe that he sets up shop for a couple days, evaluates the city, and you best believe the Lord was using his prayers in chapter one to help him formulate a strategy. Believe that. After three days of coming up with a plan, he then brings in the people of God and gives them one powerful, motivational speech. And The people respond in unison and say, let us rise up and build. Then in chapter three, you see 46 different groups of people rebuilding the temple wall that had been in shambles for over 140 years. In chapter four, In five opposition strikes, however, but through it all, Nehemiah and his team persevere and they keep on going. In chapter 6, the text leads us to believe that they completed the construction project in 52 days. But that's not the end of the story, for the wall was merely a symbol of the spiritual state that they were in. God wanted their hearts. So in chapter 8, you see God's people for the first time in over 100 years look at Ezra the scribe and say, Ezra, we, we want to hear from God. We recognize that God is moving right now and that he's using the prayers of Nehemiah and the prayers of his people to do things for us that we, we could never even imagine. We, we want to hear directly from the word. So Ezra gets the book of the law. He probably dusts it off because he hadn't read from it in years. And he stands up behind a podium of some kind <laughs> and opens the Bible and reads from it for a quarter of the day. You guys are smart people. 24 divided by four is six. For six straight hours, he read from the Bible. No comic relief, no creative illustrations, no fancy jargon, just the word and the people of God. And God's people were cool with that. They were content. And then after that, they spent another six hours Confessing and repenting of their sin. What type of effect did Nehemiah's prayer in chapter one have? Nehemiah's prayer led to a national revival in the city of Jerusalem. What type of effect can your personal prayer have this morning on your life? It can lead to a personal revival. And some of you really need that. I know I do because at times I can just become so spiritually lethargic and dry and I can go from meeting to meeting, from preaching engagement to preaching engagement, from staff, leadership, council to I can just do, 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 do and put on my religious clothes but be so distant from God. I remember just this past week I got in a car accident, I think it was um, eight days ago, in Columbia, South Carolina, a guy hit me from behind and I was diagnosed with a mild concussion. And I was was forced to slow down. And that's a good thing for me because I'm a workaholic and I sometimes put my job ahead of my family and ahead of my God. So I was forced to kind of just not do anything and just rest. And I believe it was the day after the accident, I was home, I didn't preach that day at Awaken Church and I felt so distant from God and I remember sitting at my dining room table and getting my bible and just saying lord speak to me give me something it wasn't some long elaborate prayer filled with all of these huge theological words it was just a simple lord i i need to hear from you i'm distant right now show up in my life and you know what he did He led me to Psalm 1 and I opened the word and I read from Psalm 1 and I heard the psalmist say blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly nor stand in the way of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on it he meditates day and night. And once I got that word from the Lord he drew me into his presence and I was changed. What I'm trying to say is One little prayer this morning on Sunday, July 12th, can lead to your revival. You just need to choose to actually do it. You know, I mean, it's one thing to, like, talk about, like, doing things for God and obeying the Lord and praying, but it's a whole other thing to actually put feet to our prayers and and apply what we're hearing and what we're learning. The Bible says, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their ways, then, so again, you're educated people, that's a conditional statement, right? If, then, I pray that you choose to ask God for revival in your life this morning. It's serious stuff. I know we've got the awkward silence going on. I'm cool with the awkwardness, you know? Like, we need to sit in that sometimes and really just feel the weight of what we're talking about. Like, we, we are here to worship and serve a holy God. And it's his will for you to walk in his ways and love him with everything that you have. Prayer is what's gonna get you there. So let's take a moment right now and just if you guys can bow your heads with me real quick, I want to lead you in a in just a short prayer. And if it's the desire of your heart this morning to to get right with God and if you want revival to happen in your life, I I pray that you would pray this prayer after me. It's it's not a magical prayer. It's not the prayer that changes you. It's it's God who changes you. But let's Let's express to God together collectively as a body of believers this morning that we want him. If this is the desire of your heart, won't you just pray this with me? Lord, forgive me. Lord, heal me. Lord, change me. Lord, lead me. I want revival in my own life, in my marriage, at work, at home, grant that to me by your grace. The Bible says in Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. Just take a second to do that right now. We live in such a crazy, hectic, busy world. There's noise around us all the time. Text message alerts, email dings, commercials, radio, et cetera, et cetera. Be still and know that he is God. He's the great and awesome God. Take some time just to praise him for who he is. Take some time to thank him for his grace and his mercy in your life. Thank him for Jesus on the cross for you in your place. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for very scarcely will one die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man one might dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, Verses 5 through 11, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness and appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, John 3, 16 through 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world could be saved. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther calls this a great exchange. A little over 2000 years ago, all of your sin was transferred to Christ's account on the cross. And upon repentance and belief, when you believe in him, all of his righteousness is transferred to your account. That's why today, if you're a Christian, you're more righteous than you will ever be. And tomorrow, you're more righteous than you will ever be. The Bible says in Lamentations that his mercy is new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We worship you for being a faithful God. says in Psalms that the Lord is close to the broken heart and he saves those who are crushed in spirit thank you for being a God who's close to us our great and awesome God as we sit here just for a few minutes and just bask in your presence and in your character Lord I pray that you just continue to speak to us I know many people out there are going through immense pain and suffering from a host of different things. And Lord, they need, they need you. So Lord, we pray that your ear will be attentive to their prayer. We know your ear will be attentive because you're always with us and you're always there and you will never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you for this time praise you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.